Christian Medical and Dental Associations hope you enjoy today's chapel message. So the reason why I'm in the States now is because, well, the Lord allowed me to write this book called Dream Brave, and it was scheduled to be published in the end of January. And I thought to myself, hey, you know what, God, I have my own plans. I'm going to go to Tanzania by Christmas, and this is how I want to glorify you. I had my fixed idea of how I wanted to serve and glorify God. I didn't know that last September, I would find myself in the intensive care unit. I hadn't realized that while I was in Tanzania, a very unusual pain in my tricep had gotten worse. And as I continued to nurse that, I thought, you know, it's a musculoskeletal pain, it'll get better, but it never got better. And by the time I had let it fester, I realized one day that I could no longer cook. I could no longer go to the, to the gym. I know I don't look like it now, but I used to be up at the gym at 5.50 a.m. every single morning. <laughs> but look, if I had weather like, and, and scenery like yours, I would never be in a gym. I would be outside all the time. And the final straw came when I couldn't even type on my phone. And I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, what are you doing in my life? What is happening? When I went to see the doctor, he gave me an MRI and wow, he just said, how can you live with this pain for so long? <laughs> it turned out that I had a very unfortunate slipped disc in my neck. So they took apart my, um, they kind of pushed in between my trachea as well as my, the main artery to my heart. They took out a little bit of my spine and then they replaced it with titanium. And when that happened, I thought to myself, wow, I'm going to be all better the next day. The doctor was so kind. He connected me with other patients who would actually um, encourage me, right? And they would say things like, you know what? I got better the next day. I didn't even need physio. I just went back straight to work. And very sadly, I was one of the few percentage of patients who struggled with pain weeks and weeks after surgery. But it was through that pain that I felt the Lord speaking to me. And this is what he said. The three things that mattered so much to me, the typing, the cooking, the exercise, they represented three strongholds in my life. Because the exercise was a form of, you know, although I had hidden it under the guise of, you know, um, self-discipline, it was really a representation of my need to look and be a certain way in front of people. The cooking, it represented how strongly I tied my identity to being a wife and a mother. And the last one, the typing, my obsession with work and ministry and social media. And God just put a stop to all of that. And it took me 12 weeks to heal from that pain for me to understand what God was doing in my inner life. During that time, on the 12-week mark, I was so excited. You know, those of you who are healthcare practitioners, or maybe you've been through injuries, you know that the 12-week mark is like the golden milestone. You can go back and resume normal activities for a lot of different kinds of conditions. So I was so excited. But on that day, exactly 12 weeks post-surgery, 
something unfortunate happened. I went to physiotherapy. I wasn't trying to be gung-ho, I promise you. And on that very day, the physiotherapist accidentally injured my left knee. I had to do another MRI, and I discovered she had torn my left knee meniscus. When that happened, I was devastated. But I knew, I just knew. You know when things happen like that, when it's the exact day, 12 weeks after surgery, you just know it's God, isn't it? I know some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, is she preaching like this bad suffering theology? Like, I am not a suffering theologian, but I do know this, that God is sovereign. And when I pressed in and I asked him what it was that he wanted me to do or learn from this, I felt he was telling me, Waisha, I want you to just go back to ground zero. I just want you to go back to ground zero. So about a week ago, I just, le- I just quit my job as a medical doctor. About a month ago, I closed the Singapore entity of my non-profit. And then I also gave up my very brutal gym routine. But I knew that all this was God preparing us to transit into the mission field. So today, even as I share my book with you, you're thinking, oh, she's going to come up and tell us to dream big and dream brave for God. But actually what God has taught me is that the first step to dreaming bravely is surrendering ourselves and saying, God, your dreams are way better than mine. Amen? Amen. All right. Can I start by sharing with you a little story? Is that okay? Okay, that's a lot of stories over there already, but (laughs) this is usually how I begin my talk, which is this. So my story began when I was 17 years old. How many of you grew up in like Christian households? Just, just like a show of it. Wow, oh, wow, look at this heritage here. So I only received the Lord when I was 17. We grew up in like a, a Taoist, Buddhist kind of household, praying to multiple gods, burning joysticks, and that was the way of life. Our family would drive about five hours to go to this temple. And I remember when I was 17, I was praying to this 100-foot-long, gold-coated Buddha, sleeping Buddha. And I was there on my knees praying when I felt a nudge inside of me saying, I am God, but I am not here. So that was when my spiritual search began. I know some of you are going, wow. I know when I think back, I'm like, that blows my mind too. I almost became a Muslim. But thank God, God kept putting Christians in my way, even though I found them bothersome and irritating. (laughs) I was finally convinced that God loved me and He was pursuing me. And one day, as a 17-year-old girl, I decided that I would ask my very Asian pre-believing dad to let me go to Nepal for six weeks. And like any good Asian dad who saw that Nepal was in the throes of a Maoist uprising, burning flags and political instability, guess what he said? No! Of course not. You're, I, I, have never, I had never even stayed, later, stayed up later away from home further than 10 p.m. Even for prom, yeah. <laughs> so that's how conservative my dad was. And I told the Lord, I said, God, if you can change my dad's heart, you must be real. It would take a miracle to move my dad's heart, yeah. (laughs) 
And one day, so this happens day after day after day, night after night. I would ask him, Dad, would you let me go? Would you let me go? And he says, No, no, no. And one day he comes home with a look of bewilderment on his face when he says, The universe must be with you. This is my pre-believing dad, right? The universe must be with you because I have a staff of just five people and one of them knows a Singaporean missionary to Nepal who's coming back next week and who wants to meet with me and she tells me she's going to look out for you. They actually meet up and he lets me go. I go there and the amazing thing is that nobody expected that while I was living with these girls, that we would be evicted traumatically one day. And I know in the States, like, when you move, how many of you have moved homes before? Have you? Okay, oh wow, okay. Many of you have moved homes. You call a mover, don't you? Or do you do it all yourself? Do you call a mover? Yeah? Okay, some of you do, some of you do, and you get a U-Haul, right? Yeah, the U-Haul, I've done that too. (laughs) We lived in Baltimore for one year. These girls, from as young as three years old, they were packing their underwear and their socks. They were dismantling their beds. They were putting pans and pots under their armpits and running to a pickup truck. And I stood there as a 17-year-old, awkward and depressed. And I told the Lord, if you are good, how can this happen? And what would you have me do? At that time, I had never read the gospel. I, had, I wasn't even sure if this Jesus thing was real. I just asked the Lord, God, if you are real, would you use me in some small way? And as all that unfolded, on the way back, I remember the Lord downloading in my mind pictures and illustrations and a story about a little girl and her kite. And so on the way home, I painted a little book called Kite Song. Everybody said it wouldn't work because my thought was that I would raise funds through this book to build a permanent home for the girls. That's what the missionary house parents wanted. I said, do you think it'll work? And they said, yes, it's our only chance. (laughs) But everybody told me, you should wait till you become a doctor. You should wait till you become a surgeon. Get more credentials. Then people will read your little picture book, you know? And I was so discouraged, but I remember I went to the publisher and he said this, he's a good Christian Methodist man. And he said, you know what? I'll sponsor 2,000 copies of your book. It's a great idea, but I have to tell you something. Your paintings are really bad. (laughs) So I went to the National Library. I taught myself how to paint. And in three months, Kite Song was published. And in the following three months, over $100,000 was raised to, build this permit, to purchase this permanent home for the girls. And if you look at that, I want you to think about a little girl who was depressed and awkward and had no Christian networks. I was like a fish out of water. God did this. God did this. The little girls, they grew up to become beautiful young women. They made me promise every time I went back that if I ever got married, I had to bring my husband. So that's Cliff with me. And in this picture, you see nearly the same girls seated in almost the same positions, but 10 years apart. And that was the story of my life, God, that when you give us a little dream, all we need is a little bit of faith to make things grow. 
Because it's not the amount of faith that we need, but it's whom we place it in. Amen? Amen. So you see, this kind of formed the foundation of my life. Fortunately or unfortunately, but I realized that life wasn't so straightforward. I just thought to myself, you know what? This little bit of faith, I just give it to God. He's going to water it. It's going to grow. Life is so straightforward. But it didn't happen that way. So today, I'm going to share with you, unpack just a little bit about Joseph's life. Shall we do that? Is that okay? Let's read together. Genesis 37, 3-4. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Oh gosh, his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, old dear, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come down and bow to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Ah, here comes that dreamer, they said, to each other, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him to one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes out of his dreams. Now when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from this, from their hands. Ah, let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. So Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then they got Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to the father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, 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 he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Now, friends, when we read Joseph's journey, you're not unfamiliar with this. You've been Christian way longer than I have. <laughs> right? But when you look at his life, look at this. It's just up and down, up and down. He was most favored by Jacob. Then he was sold as a slave. He's bought by Potiphar, rose in status and influence. And then Potiphar's wife seduced him, thrown into jail. He interpreted the dreams correctly. He was promised release. And then he was forgotten again. And then summoned by Pharaoh and finally granted divine favor. Friends, how many of us have walked through this journey in life? And today I want to encourage you that if that's you, if you've looked through the circumventing detours that God has taken you, that none of this has been my mistake. A lot of people think that God compensated Jacob, uh, Joseph. 
he compensated Joseph through giving him all that divine favour later in his life to compensate him for all the suffering he had been through. But friends, that is not true at all. Through all the pains and sufferings that Joseph went through, God used his life to prepare him through the pit and through prison for the palace. So if you're going through some pit and prison experiences right now, I want to encourage you that perhaps God is preparing you for the palace. Amen? Amen. I just have a couple of minutes left, but I'm going to share this photo with you. This is a picture of me when I was five years old. And I remember I went to kindergarten and I told everybody my name is Christine. <gasps> I hated my name, YGR, because friends, it is not, it's even an, it is not a female name. It was a backup name. So the doctors told my parents that I would be the long-coveted boy to the family. And as you know, boys are highly, highly coveted in Asia. And I was the last child. Their only hope for a little boy. And I wasn't. So my name was supposed to be a boy's name. But like any good old Asian family, there was always a backup for every situation. So YGL was the backup name. <laughs> and I told myself, oh Lord, I don't want to have a backup name for the rest of my life. So I named myself Christine at the age of five, going to kindergarten, first day of school. I thought, I can have a fresh start. I didn't even tell my parents. And then my sister busted it when she went to school and told everybody, no, 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 no. this is not her name at all. But, but little did I know, at the age of five, that Christine meant Christ follower. You see, God knows the end, even from our beginning. <coughs> but I didn't realize that later on, after Kite Song happened, that I would find myself in the throes of an eating disorder through medical school. And it was at that time, at that time where I wanted to take my life, that I remember crying out to God. And I, while I was seated, in the university dormitory, which was a high rise, I looked down and I remember telling the Lord, I would like to have all this end. I felt ashamed that as a Christian, that I would feel that way. But the shame buried me all the more. But while I was praying, God gave me a vision of me speaking to an international audience in the States, about my healing from anorexia. I thought to myself, that's insane. That must be like, maybe like a memory from like an Oprah Winfrey show or something that I watched, you know? But surely this is not from the Lord. How is that going to happen? I'm like a little Asian girl, nobody, with a name that nobody can remember. What good is going to come out of me? But God did something, and many, many years later, when I was at Johns Hopkins doing my Master's of Public Health, I received a call one day, a random phone call. And this was how crazy it was. This was how crazy it was. While I was recovering, I had painted a little book called A Taste of Rainbow. And when I published this book, I had a lot of resistance because in Asia, there's, there is a saying called Tiu Lian. 
Tulian means literally throwing your face away. It's literally like peeling away your face and throwing it away. And it means it's a shame. So when I wanted to publish this book, everybody told me, Zhen Tulian, which is such a disgrace, that you're throwing your face away. And I remember at that time, Cliff, we were still dating at the time, and he told me this. He said, Genesis 50.20 is for you. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And Cliff was the one person who said, you got to push through. I believe in you. It's no wonder I married him. <laughs> so the book was finally published. But guess what? Many, many years after that incident, the vision did not come true. But nearly 10 years after that vision, I found myself in the States receiving a call while I was at Hopkins from a lady in Nashville, Tennessee. Isn't it amazing how I... And this is what she said. I'm calling you. I said, how did you get my number? How do you know me? She said, I found a little copy of your book, A Taste of Rainbow, because my friend who is the sister-in-law of a psychiatrist, who is the faculty member, colleague of your supervisor at Hopkins, passed it to me. Four degrees of separation. And she said, I need you to be my keynote speaker for my Christian women's conference called Hungry for Hope. It's going to give life to women with eating disorders, Christian women. And I remembered the vision. I remembered the vision. And I remember this. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And there I was in Tennessee. There I was. And as I was there, I thought about the circumventing detours that Joseph took in his life. The pit and the prison and all the detours that I'd gone through, even with the spine surgery and then the knee injury and now coming to the States and of Tanzania, I'm thinking to myself, God is preparing us for something beyond our imaginings. And so even as I close today, I want us to just take a moment to pause and reflect on the painful, aching, detours that God has brought us on our lives. And to just thank Him for that. Shall we do that? Let's pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You for just speaking to us today about our dreams, about the hopes and visions that You've had for our lives and the lives of our family. And even as many of us here today grapple with loss and grief and pain and suffering, God, we trust that you are a good God. Even through the loneliness of the pit and the pain of the prison experiences, God, we trust that you are preparing our hearts and our spirits for eternity. You're preparing us for a palace, a place that we have not yet seen.
So Father, even as we leave this place today, I pray that you would just encourage each and every one of us. I pray that the book, Dream Brave, will be a blessing to all. And I pray that every person will leave knowing that, Lord, all the experiences in our lives are for something. They are for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much for the privilege of being here. I pray the Lord bless you.